So um, I've also promised them, actually, David. I've said, I said, obviously, I've interviewed David before, but I couldn't do justice to the many times that you uh, replicated your sound effects verbally. So if at any point <laughs> you want to, you want to say, now the sound I'm talking about, because I couldn't do it on paper. Okay. So if there's any point you want to say, the sound in Mad Planet, so the sound in Cubit was this. We're all for that. Beatbox away. The human Sid chip. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, I'm David Thiel, pinball audio artist and sound designer for Cubert and Mad Planets, and you're listening to the Ted Dabney Experience Podcast. and welcome to the podcast. I'm Richard May and I'm here as ever with Paul Drury Hello. and Tony Temple. Hello. You'll recognise Paul's byline from Retro Gamer magazine and Tony is the author of Missile Commander, a journey to the top of an arcade classic. Tony is also the proprietor of ArcadeBlogger.com where he chronicles video arcade game history and also diarises his own classic arcade game machine restorations. For this episode we speak with David Thiel, known primarily these days for his pinball audio work on games such as Tron Legacy, dialed in, The Hobbit, Transformers, you name it. But David's CV extends way back into the golden age of video arcade and home gaming. He was the audio artist on all the early Gottlieb classics such as Qbert, Mad Planet and Reactor, before going on to work on the Atari and Commodore home computer platforms at Action Graphics, working on classics such as Winter Games for Epics. David talks to us about those early days at Gottlieb, working with Warren Davis, Jeff Lee, Khan Yabamoto and Tim Skelly. And we finish with a little bit of modern pinball. As always, thank you for listening. You can find all the usual social media links at tdepodcast.net. You can also support us at Kofi. The URL is ko-fi.com forward slash tdepodcast. Hi, I'm Gary Vincent. And I'm Mike Stuhler. The Ted Dabney Experience Podcast is brought to you in association with ACAM, the American Classic Arcade Museum. Visit ClassicArcadeMuseum.org to learn more about our collection and visit us in Laconia, New Hampshire. David, uh, welcome to the show. And you're actually the first guest on the podcast who's kind of primarily known for their audio work in the arcade business. Do you think the importance of audio as part of a, of a coin-op title is often overlooked? Sure. Out of sight, out of mind. Plus, the audio for something in a coin-op environment is optional. And uh, I, I describe my work as working in an acoustic war zone. What? <laughs> Tell us from the front line what the war's like. Well, back in the day, my weapons were minimal. Uh, coin-operated uh, companies, you know, they had a speaker in there because they had to, but they got a paper cone, cheapest possible speaker from somewhere, sometimes behind a grill where the sound could barely come out, and uh, using the cheesiest amplifier possible. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is is th these things would be lined up, right? Yeah. The graphics don't interfere with each other. If we have three machines touching each other and people playing, vision is a focusing thing, right? You you can you see yours, you don't see what's going on on either side of you. 
Sound, unfortunately, um, is not that way. So the sound of all the machines in a, in a space are, are interfering with each other. I, I had to get used to the notion that my work was optional. And if I wanted to be heard, if I felt there was something I had to say to the player that was important, I really had to work hard to, you know, in both the crafting of that message and uh, the mixing of that message, I had to do whatever I could so it could peep above the chaos and, and you'd actually get it. You, you said there that if you wanted to tell something to the player, what exactly do you, do you mean by that? Well, you know, what does sound do for an interactive entertainment? Uh, it doesn't really matter what it is. But in CoinOp, I view it as a functional problem. Okay. I'm very much a function over form. Um, and I feel like, and I work in both a verbal and a nonverbal space. I mean, if I have speech, I mean, I can say something directly to the player. But back in those days, <laughs> while I did have something that was like speech, I couldn't do it very much. And speech fundamentally, most of the time, isn't that exciting either. So I'm working in a non-speech domain, and I build a vocabulary, if you will, a non-speech vocabulary that hopefully communicates to the player important things. And what are those? Well, uh, scoring, excitement, you know, ooh, you just did something good. Or look out, here comes something very bad, and you should gird your loins. Or the notion of where you are. If you have to hit a bank of things or uh, some things five times, there's the notion of progression. Yeah. So that even a blind person who's heard the game enough times would know, oh yeah, you're halfway there. I, I, I like that. You can clearly are advocating for the, the key role of audio in the coin-op experience. I just wonder though, did you, um, you, you call it a bit of a war, did you sometimes find that you were fighting a losing battle against the, the coders and the game designers? Did you sort of have to argue for the importance of, uh, of audio? Uh, and did they did they take some convincing? Well, you know, there was a battle, but typically the good programmers, the ones I respected and the ones who did good product were always on my side because they knew I could help them. They knew that if I was doing my job in my channel, right, that the game would end up being more fun. Mm -hmm. Now, the fun would not be attributed to the audio because that's not the way the brain works. The, the amount of meat in your brain associated with vision is dramatically larger than that which is, you know, processes audio. Mm. And so everything about your thinking, human beings, this is just human beings, uh, works through the visual channel and, and even our language. Here, let me show you this sound. I'll say that. And I mean, I don't mean that. Um, so what happens when when sound is really good for a game? People enjoy the game and they say, gee, that was a really great game. But they rarely go, oh, that was great sound. So my contribution gets diverted to the overall enjoyment. And that's fine with me. You know, I, I, as long as I can monetize this and get paid to do it and afford to be able to do it, then I'm good. I, I've had to come to that realization over over the uh, the few years I've been doing. It. Well, I, I hope your appearance on this show, in some ways, um, you know, uh, highlights the um, the contribution you made to some of our favorite titles. Now, you did come from a live music background. Mm -hmm. uh, I have had great fun watching, uh, I hope I pronounce this right, Chihuahua All-Stars, yep. the band you were in in the 70s. Uh, you, listeners, you can find them on YouTube. Big tunes, even bigger hair. Really good. I just want to know, is that your background playing uh, in kind of the Chicago bar scene in the 70s, did that help at all? 
when you came to make video game sounds and music in the 80s? Oh, I would think so. Uh, because it's it's more fundamental than, than that. You know, at some point, all this technology, all these pixels, all this stuff is just about entertaining. And you, you have to, you know, it, it's a new kind of instrument, if you will. But, you know, my thing is having worked directly with the audience for years, for seven years, I mean, I would show up at 9.30 at night and play an instrument for some number of people in a, in a bar somewhere. I do that for six hours. And you get a sense when it's working, when it's not working, what amuses people, what doesn't. So, uh, understanding, you know, the contract for entertainment is here, give me your attention and I will make it worth your while. So yeah, having been an entertainer and the fact I played keyboards and I played rock and I played lounge bands and I played prod more times than I would like to think, um, <laughs> you know, really, I think helped me when I went to approach the problem for the very first game, like, what should I do for this? Who's my audience and how can I how can I tickle them? How can I capture their attention? How can I amuse them and, and entertain them? And I'm not sure every programmer or engineer that that's like high up in their agenda. You got the job at Gottlieb in 1982, but I understand that you I mean, you didn't get the job because of your musical um, talent. Uh, so what actually got you the job? <laughs> um I was at an insurance company working on mainframes. Actually, I was I was in training. I was training people. I was teaching them how to become PL1 programmers. Uh, but I still, I, I was, uh, the mainframe environment just seemed like insanity to me. Uh, they were getting so little done. And uh, meanwhile, at home, I had home computers. I had Apple IIs and uh, mm. Commodore, Vic, and, and I was a, a mad hobbyist doing that stuff. And I realized at that time that, had they applied this some of this technology that I was playing with and having a good time with, that I could solve seventy percent of their backlog problems. They were they were horribly behind because of their approach. The mainframe approach was just insane. So I wanted to get out of there. I wanted to get paid to work on small computers, eight bit computers, sixteen bit computers. That's what I wanted to do because I knew it was, I was doing it for fun at home. And so when a headhunter suggested a game company to me. While I liked games, that wasn't my, I, I knew this was an escape hatch out of working for Zurich American <laughs> and having a chance to uh, concentrate on, on these smaller uh, machines uh, where I owned owned the thing instead of 100 people sharing four meg of memory. Fair enough. And so you got to, to Gottlieb. Um, you, you were employed, I understand, as a programmer. So what? how did you then get into basically taking on the role of audio guy. Yeah. Well, you know, out of sight, out of mind, they got fairly close to uh, Tim Skelly's game going to be built. I mean, they were 90 days away from it. And at some point, somebody said, you know, it needs to make sound. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's perfect. Because now I'm going to hang on to Tony, who's going to take up this mantle of asking you about Tim and Reactor. Uh, so, David, uh, during your time at Gottlieb, um, you were fortunate enough to work alongside uh, the aforementioned late great Tim Skelly. I just 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 wondered if you could share some of your memories of Tim from that time. Oh, yeah, T Tim was Tim was an amazing character. Keep in mind, he was the only one there who had ever 
made successful coin-operated games. Right. Uh, he'd done all those vector games for Cinematronics under the worst, though just in every way, lowest paid, working in San Diego in like an upstairs office at 110 degrees. I mean, it was just nuts. Um, and he did some great work and they made a ton of money and they didn't give him any of it. So um, he escaped there and uh, got got this three or four game contract at Gottlieb. And uh, so I was talking to Tim. I He was an eccentric at that time. He was plagued by migraines. He was self-medicating for that. It was it was challenging for him, and he sort of kept to himself. So he was a package, right? He designed the game, he programmed the game, and he did all the art. Games were small enough at that time where if you had someone like Tim, who was fundamentally an artist, who had learned programming, taught himself. He was <laughs> The funniest story I have about that, uh, Tim was ex is an extremely clever guy, but he had his way. So he, they gave him the blue box, the big Intel expensive uh, hardware emulator blue box from Intel to code the game on. And we only had two of these in shop. They were very much under contention, but Tim's was the first game. So he owned that machine and he was working on it. And uh, Tim, he, he taught himself programming and, and he was coding everything as one big Intel uh, ASM assembly language program. No sub-modules, no anything, just one big program. The problem with that was that this thing was based on 8-inch floppies. So there was finite storage space on the blue box. And about, I don't know, 70% of the way into this project, uh, the blue box just gave up and said, well, there's no more space. I can't store your symbol tables. I can't. I can't. I can't go on. <laughs> so Tim threw his hands up because had he written it in a more sophisticated way with submodules, then those things could have been loaded in one at a time, compiled, and then all linked together. But Tim didn't really have a command with the linker because the linker was like a new thing to him. So he ignored it. He just did the simplest thing he could with it. So the project just stopped. Um, management ran around for a week. And then they spent, I think it was 25 grand for the Intel hard drive, which at that time was like the size of a small refrigerator. <laughs> and it had a fixed platter and a, and a removable platter. And that gave him a total of 10 megabytes. <laughs> wow. <That's... laughs> this is 1981, 10 megabytes and for 25 grand. And then, you know, they plugged that in, he put his stuff on it and bang, he was, a, a, you know, a way to finish the game. So he sounds like a sort of, sort of mad scientist, you know. Very much so. And... Uh, but Tim and I got along. We were, he, we, we were, you know, just dealing with each other, kind of feeling each, each other out and, and, and understand. He respected the fact that I had been a performing musician in a prior life. And I respected what he was. I was awed by what he was up to. Um, and then, you know, when it got close, I, you know, somebody's got to do sound for this. And it ain't going to be Craig Byerwaltis, who was the pinball audio guy, because he was busy. So I just, you know, hey, I can do this. And Tim said, sure, David can do this. Now, neither of us knew whether I could do this because at that time, the task was extremely difficult. It was pure software sound. There are no things on that soundboard which make sound. Right. I mean, it's not like you can poke a value into the chip and it goes and it does something. No, you just, you're feeding a stream of computation of numbers to a converter, which converts that into a voltage, which goes into an amplifier, which wiggles a cone on a speaker, moves air. And if you do that appropriately, 
<laughs> okay. You get something. Yeah. And we're talking here, of course, about reactor. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you've just just touched on the the difficulty of of um, you know turning zeros and ones into audio sounds. Um, so was that very much trial and error from your part? I mean, so so sort of you know, talk us through sitting down for the first time in front of a keyboard and thinking, right, where the hell do I start? Well, I I had a book. I I, I mean, I'd have been a student of of. You have to remember at that time, digital audio was novel. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, 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 this is the time, there was a time not too many years before there wasn't, when there wasn't even such a thing. So a guy, uh, gosh, I want to say Craig Anderton, but some guy wrote this big, thick book about all the different approaches and most of them were hardware, but he had about three pages on a software wavetable algorithm. And I looked at that and I looked at that and I studied that and I said, yeah, this looks like just the thing. And I implemented that and I started playing with that. And I pretty much will, will say that my two years uh, was based on that one, that, that three pages, that, that that technique as a core technology was the way that I uh, fed that converter and made sounds. Now there's a incredible you know it's software so you code anything so there's uh that's where the creativity came because there was no one-to-one um in trying to make sounds for this Uh, tim was very appreciative of this and he agreed with my approach because i i looked at the problem and i looked at the peers at the time my competition and you know it was pac-man yes and it was you know space invaders and it, it occurred to me that that 11, 12-year-old boys, while they were, you know, it was okay, the Pac-Man music was fine, it wasn't really, they would, I don't think they would run out and buy an album of, of that sort of noodly noodly stuff. And so I thought if there was any possible way that I can make, you know, some rock thing that I, that's what I want to do. So I tried a lot of things and I came up with a, a, a beautiful, uh, well, it was a trick or it's a technique, depending on your attitude, but I came up with a way of making this thing, this nasty thing that sounded sort of like a distorted guitar. And I knew how to make a bass drum and I could make those two things together. And then I wrote a bunch of little riffs and that became sort of the face for it. And and Tim was a rock and roll guy. His his mentality, his approach was very much, you know, kind of punk rock and roll. Mm-hmm. So he appreciated, you know, that I was trying to put this face on it. Then the other things I was trying to do for the game was to uh, make it very electric. I had a, a tech who supported me in you know keeping the boards working and things. Chris Brewer, he was a great guy. We, we were, became fast friends. And uh, his hobby, I would characterize it as big electricity. He loved to play with big electricity, meaning making Jacob's ladders and, and all this stuff with like a big transformer and 20,000 volts. And, and you watch this like Frankenstein movie, you watch the sparks climb up the metal and that kind of thing. Yep. And I wanted, I wanted that kind of sound in reactor. Now I can't digitize anything. So I have to figure out an algorithm which will make something like that. So bless his soul. He brought one of these things into my studio. <laughs> we set it up. And, and so I, I had it there for inspiration. You know, the sound of big electricity going zzzz. 
amazing that kind of (laughs) well but reactor is a great example of a game where the the sound suite really does fit the gameplay and of course the subject matter you know it um i i can't imagine playing reactor with a with a frogger soundtrack for example so you know i I think it fits perfectly i I was going to ask you about the uh, speech um in reactor which is was was obviously a a fairly novel thing to have in a video game at that time. Yeah. How much of a challenge? How much of a challenge was that to um, to figure out? Oh, it was nasty. <laughs> and it was only nasty because there just was so little help. I mean, I got the board; it had the chip on it. I knew what address the the chip lived, and I knew where the registers were, so I knew how to poke numbers at it. And I had a one-page thing which showed me the sixty-four phonemes that it thought it could make. Okay. A phoneme is like a syllable. If you go to a dictionary and you'll see words broken down by syllables, mm-hmm. that's really the closest notion. But that was it, right? There's 64 of these things and then you have a dictionary. And so if you want to say words, uh, you literally went to the dictionary and, and tried to find the mapping between the 64 things that the Votrax could make and the dictionary syllables. And the most obvious mapping, you know, K for a K and a for an U, you know, you would use those. But uh, human speech is is a hundred times more varied than that because mm. you've you've captured all the nuance into sixty four things. Uh, not enough resolution. You're, you're you're listening really to speech jaggies, if you will. So so David, your 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 frustrations working with a Votrax chip on Reactor. Um, took you straight into Qbert, who, as we know, um, has a very odd um, jumbled and garbled sound, um, which is now which is now famous. Can you can you talk to us a little bit about your your audio experience on Qbert and also working with Warren, Jeff, and Khan on that on that game? We've 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 spoken to both Warren and Jeff on the podcast, but it'd be good to get your take on that as well. Ah, yeah. Well, Jeff and I were similar in that we supported the whole lab, mm. so if people needed things on the screen they they weren't tim skelly they talked to jeff and if people needed audio they talked to me so i we both worked across a lot of projects mm-hmm. and i i knew who warren was because i was working on the game prior to that the one that didn't get made the sort of superhero thing yes sure and, yeah, yeah and warren was in charge of rubble because these guys would hit buildings and then they needed <laughs> to rubble. animate <laughs> rubble coming off the building stuff but anything you animate like that then you know when it hits the ground you got to get rid of it because you don't have that many sprites so i knew who he was and meanwhile i'm working on reactor and i've told this story so many times and in fact i had to fix the story because i discovered to my dismay several years ago that the chip can actually do what i couldn't make it do oh right and so i have a revised cubert frustration story (laughs) go on which you know i i much maligned the votrax chip deservedly but you know, the one thing i said it couldn't do it, it just was i didn't know how to make it do it but i i still don't know i actually didn't download the string i didn't look at it because i just i'm busy guy but mm. you know i i was trying to get it to say uh bonus points because the ball would be in the little reactor chamber bouncing around and it's great because your eyes are over here trying to keep from dying meanwhile the game is telling you how your bonus points are accruing. And so that's a real good idea. I, I said, okay, great. 
5,000 bonus points, 10,000 bonus points. You're great. And I could not make it do it. All it ever said was bogus points. Right. And uh, I spent days on this. Um, I'm at this point 31 years old, and I'm spending days on trying to make this nasty little piece of silicon say bonus. (laughs) I couldn't do it. So in frustration, as I've said many times, I I just said, okay, I I have to coke credit Chris with me. I don't know who came up with it, but we said, well, what if we just put random numbers into the chip? What's that mm, sound like? Mm. Let's let's take a day off of this hideous task. And this voice came out and I said, wow, that's nifty. Yeah. So, I, you know, that voice was not going to be in Reactor. So I just put it in my hip pocket and said, okay, fine. Then, so that that became the voice of Cuba. Yeah, I was wandering in the lab. I mean, I used to work crazy hours at 7.30, 8 o'clock at night. I'm taking a break. And I wandered downstairs. And uh, Warren was crouched over his thing. And he had this character bouncing around. By this time, it was like on the triangle grid, hexagonal grid. And the character was mm-hmm. bouncing around. And I saw the character. And I just, Warren... Have I got something for you? <laughs> <laughs> this ca- I've got a voice for your character. And then I discovered that he had these other characters, and I had the technology to change the pitch of these utterances. So I immediately began mapping them. You know, the the biggest guy, Ugg, had a really low voice, and then and Sam, the really annoying green one, had a really high voice. And I liked it because it was functional as well, that we would start the speech before the character even was on the screen as a warning to the player, there's something dangerous yeah. entering the grid. Well, it also so, kind of, um, if you, if you, sorry to talk over you, but it also kind of bridges that translation gap, doesn't it? Because if your characters are not speaking any, any one um, definable language, rather they're making noises evocative of certain feelings, I guess, yeah. then you don't have to worry about, I guess, translating you know, for a, for a foreign audience, if you like. Right, right. It, it was, it was a good solution. I, I very proudly, you know, it's, it's a, it's a con- conceptual art, right? Yes. We live in a time of conceptual art where, you know, you, you come with the concept, let's cover the hillside in Southern California with a big orange tarp, right? The execution of that isn't even done by the artist. The concept, yeah. you know, and, and, and Chris so becomes an artist because he came up with yeah. a concept, my concept was let's stick random numbers in the Botrax chip. <laughs> it wasn't hard to do. I had the algorithm working in probably 10 minutes. But the concept, nobody had done it to that point, And I did it first and I exploited it. So it was, uh, I was so very pleased. You know, sometimes the easiest things are the best things. David, tell us a little more actually about the Votrax chip itself and also perhaps the differences between the Votrax and, for example, um, you know, the chips by Texas Instruments used by Atari. Yeah, I have a little experience because the next soundboard I, I designed, I, we actually put the TI chip on. Right, okay. And, and that was meant, those the TI chips were meant to be driven by uh, machine analysis of an utterance. So if you wanted it to say something, you would run it through this fancy program who's doing FFTs and doing all this stuff. And it would come up with an excitation chunk and a whole bunch of filter coefficients. And you feed that to the chip and then the chip would talk fairly reasonably. It wouldn't sound like a recording, but it had a lot more variety. The Voltrax was a pure digitally controlled analog synthesizer that made phonemes. Uh, it was a one-off. I mean, it was not like uh, the tech, not this guy, this guy invented it. 
uh, and it was not their business. I mean, the the name of the company in Michigan, the screw, is yeah, the Federal sure, yeah, Screw yeah. Works, and. You know, after I worked with it, the irony of that name was not lost on me. Um, <laughs> okay. So, yeah. I, you know, and, and I think there was another version of it with, you know, some more phone and stuff, but technologically it was kind of a dead end mm, Okay. because it's just not the way you do it. Even the TI chips only went so far, mm. you know, now all these years later, we, we brute force the problem with a little bit of finesse, but you know, speech is created out on very big computers and brought down to you through the cloud. And so we have Siri and we have, you know, Hey Google and Alexa, and it, it sounds great, but it, it can only sound great due to the, you know, massive increase in computation and, and size. We can apply a lot of data to the problem and a lot of computation, none of which were available in 1981 or two or three, even how many years later? Gosh, about 12 years later, when I was at Microsoft uh, in research, the text to speech problem had not been solved yet. So it's a tough, tough problem. The fact that the Votrax could make things that you could understand at all really was, it's the dancing bear, you know. He dances, he just doesn't dance very well. Um, let me walk you back a little bit um, because I do want to continue this conversation about, about silicon and and, uh, and speech. But you said earlier that with arcade games, people really go, oh, you know, that was a great sound. But I'll tell you where I said, wow, Dave, and that's with one of your more recent projects and that's with Stern's Tron Legacy, oh. which my God, that, that I love, I, I had one, I've moved it on. I actually regret it like we all do when we collect these things. <laughs> yeah. But God damn, that game, you know, obviously you have the Daft Punk um, score for Tron Legacy, which, you know, you in, you deftly um, integrated into, in, you know, and wove into all the cues and all the other audio magic of that game. But that's such a beautiful audio experience. And it got me thinking that, of course, you know, you mentioned the fact that audio is kind of lost and mingled in the arcade environment. But I guess with most modern pinball games most people have them at home it's a you know it's a different environment so i guess that gives you more freedom the last 10 years have been good to me um mm. in that respect um, as pinball machines are operated in public spaces less and less and they have moved into private collector spaces mm. um yeah that that's on my mind um i still you know sound for pinball fights with the machine yes right sound for a video game you know the video game uh, doesn't make any sound at all but the ambient level of a pinball machine if you turn the sound off is is upwards of 50 or 60 db every time you hit a flipper anything that had, fires a solenoid that's a it's there are noisy machines so even if i wanted to do subtle cues for pinball machines i'm i'm fighting against being masked by the mechanical sounds a pinball machine makes so i mean i have to be mindful of that to make what i think of as an, an effective and a robust package that that works you know if you don't hear it it didn't work yeah so I'm, I'm always fighting that battle i mean i've refined my notion of of the war field of the battlefield over the years i'm uh, i think i've just made my most effective pinball mix ever based on everything i ever knew and unfortunately i can't say for what game because well, it's that's a super super secret game 
but let's put a pin in that i could talk to you forever about about your 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 pinball music and i because i love it and i just wanted to say how much i appreciate tron legacy i just think it's beautiful but let me let me take you back in the way back machine and yeah, yeah let's go back david let's move on to another far better known piece of silicon and that's the mos technology 6581 oh. better known as the sid chip which is you know if not the heart then most definitely the soul of the world's best-selling home computer the commodore 64 um and we understand you were charged with designing a new soundboard for gottlieb incorporating dual sid chips uh and if you'll you know you got to the prototype stage before commodore walked off with all their chips what what happened there dave because that's fascinating that that notion of you know sid being in the arcade yeah that was one of the that was certainly my darkest day at gottlieb that was such a sad day i had wow okay i had a hardware engineer who was working for me he had wire wrapped that was the technology at the time wire wrapped Mm, a prototype board i had the prototype board i had Mm. i mean i i was aware of the sid chip i had programmed it a little bit and i knew i had its specs i knew that it was very it was better than anything else available at the time yamaha was not yet selling its fm chips yet mm. so this was it and it really is three mini mogs under digital control almost right it is a remarkable right. chip and the designer is a, a remarkable guy because he he's a one of those hybrid engineers who both understands digital and analog and he put everything that he knew into creating this chip great stuff so i said okay great they aren't that expensive let's put two of them in and uh, i had two processors on this board one of them was going to run all the algorithms i i knew how to write for certain classes of sound effects um so i could leverage my you know my experience there mm. and then i had a did i I think I actually, boy, I don't remember. I had a, I had another processor dedicated to controlling two SID chips. And we had used better capacitors than Commodore uses for, you know, its home computer. So the filters are dependent upon the capacitors to be, be profoundly good. So I got this prototype working. I had the operating system running on it. I was beginning to code some test things. And I had something that was feeding back it, is reminiscent of Jimi Hendrix. I was like, oh, hmm. this is going to be awesome. Nobody is going to have this. And this is going to be amazing. When a guy from the front office from purchasing came and, and said, are you the one who started this? I said, yes, I am. And the Commodores just said, no, we need all the SID chips we can make for our own purposes. And you always have to be very careful when making something, uh, manufacturing anything. Try not to have single-sourced parts for a lot of reasons. Yeah. Because if you can't get those parts, you can't ship those things you're trying to manufacture. So you can't do that. And so it was a gamble to take a single-sourced part. And nobody was making SID chips except Commodore. Mm. So bang. And uh, then I, you know, my fallback position was, you know, the square wave chips from. Uh, general instruments which everybody used i had uh dave bonecutter what a great name what a great name yeah he was my engineer <laughs> the mad max villain and uh he you know i said okay rip that out i wished i at that time i wish i'd have had lost that board uh, i wish i still had that board but he took it back and ripped the literally ripped the chips out and put in square wave chips and then i had him put some filters in hardware on them so that they I, I could have other timbres, you know, other than a square wave. Out yeah. So, well, that's the thing, David, if you still had it now, because, you know, you can still get hold of SID chips. Oh, yeah. You know, in a parallel universe as well. I know. You yeah. know. Well, and SID, it, its goodness 
you, you could still buy boards and things and, and MIDI MIDI talks to them and, and you know you can do all this stuff with SID chips. It's it is a remarkable chip. Not that much later, about a year later, I, I was making games on the C sixty four. So David, David, um, talk to us briefly about Laserdisc games. It's it's a favourite subject on the podcast, and and oh my god, we've had some tales from Warren, from from Jeff, Jeff Lee, and obviously every, everybody has a story about yeah. how you you know you, all you had to do is breathe on a laser Laserdisc game for it to just stop working. Uh, was was that was like this kind of amazing new technology that came along, and then it was just like needle stop when when it didn't work. Yeah. Well, I mercifully, I, I escaped most of that because I left before Mach 3 was done. And so. Well, tell us, okay, so Mach 3 being Gottlieb's one and only Laserdisc game, right? Oh, no. You got to remember Warren's Us versus Them. Oh, my. Yeah. I've just committed blasphemy there. We've, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yes. One of two. So it was, you know, the aforementioned Chris Brewer mm. somehow managed to grab the reins on this. And he was the game designer programmer for Mach 3. He came up from a tech and then he was like lead programmer on this. Um, and he actually rode around in the nose of a Learjet changing the film canisters when they were shooting that footage in right. around Las Vegas or somewhere. Um, and they, they did some clever audio thing, right? And they used one channel for mono audio and the other track they used for data coded as if it was coming like from a, a modem. Right. And that data then was frame synchronized because it's, you know, coming off the laser disc. And that data was telling the game where points of interest on whatever video frame is currently being shown are. And, and a poor programmer guy named Fred Darmstadt had to sit there for, I don't know, several months going, that's a point of interest. Click. Next frame. Now it's moved to here. Click. Right. <laughs> it's just... <laughs> but so it was, it was pretty clever. Um, the thing was, even though these were sort of industrial Laserdisc players, they were they were subject to really two big problems. One was vibration. Yeah. Great environment then in an arcade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're in your sit-down cabinet yeah. and your friends aren't in your sit-down cabinet. And they say, let's goof with him. And they, you know, give a foot to the side <laughs> of the cabinet and the laser just skips. <laughs> Game over, dude. Yeah. So there was that. And then the other... Uh, thing was heat so you put the game down in texas let's say and those discs are made of what vinyl and so they begin sagging and then the incidence of angle of the laser trying to read them that's no good so their solution was to put a thin plate of aluminum right on the yeah. on the underside of the disc and that kept them from sagging that's the good news mm -hmm bad news is now we have this industrial thing trying to spin something that's i don't know four or five ounces heavier than it was it was spec for <laughs> so that didn't work either yeah i mean didn't work very long so it was plagued with those kind of fundamental technological problems i don't know how it hit us and didn't hit dragon's lair i think maybe maybe it didn't but maybe uh, i don't know that much about mac 3 but i mean everybody knows about you know just please take this at face value sure. everybody knows about dragon's lair perhaps it was just one of those games that it was it, it went down but it was taking so much money they just made made the effort to to get it back back. I don't know, just just a supposition. Plus, the nature of the game was extremely discontinuous, right? Yes, you play yes. a little clip, then you sit on a still frame. Yeah. So 
if somebody kicks it in that time, who cares? But the Laserdisc footage in Mach 3 was continuous for the entire game. So any any glitch was going to not work. Yeah, I, I would have been that kid kicking the side of the cabinet. <laughs> It's part of a game. <laughs> I would have been like, yeah, yeah, so I can. Well, it's, yeah, like you say, you know, it's uh, like a warm, I think any arcade is going to be a warm environment. You know, you put you put like a, a CRT inside a, a inside a box with very little ventilation and things just start to go wrong on that basis anyway, you know. Well, and there's one more fundamental flaw to the entire notion that I, I will suggest. Go on, go on. It is because if you do what they did and film some footage and then you show that footage and you try to make a game around it, you better make sure that the interaction windows, you know, work Yeah. because the footage is what it is. It's pre-baked, it's pre-rendered. And, you know, if you get it wrong and you're Zaxxon or Xevious or any of those scroller things, you just adjust the algorithm, but you're stuck with the laser disc and Gottlieb in their infinite wisdom took the footage that they got and said, you know, this doesn't seem fast enough. So they half framed it. So they, you know, you were flying over the desert floor, I don't know, 250 miles an hour. When you play Mach 3, you're flying at 500 miles an hour. Now, the visceral thrill of looking at that footage is cool. But objects that by the time you see them and, and try to put a cursor over them, they're already past you. So, you know, that was one of those cases. That's a classic... I would say uh, uh, form over function bad decision. You know, you, they went for the eye candy instead of the ability to play the game. David, um, we'd like to ask you about Mad Planets, as it's um, it's something of a favourite of the podcast, and uh, perhaps fits in that slight cliche of forgotten gem. Um, when Ken Yabamoto, who was the um, the lead on that project, when he asked you to create a soundtrack that actually played throughout the game, did that seem like a big ask, given the technology you had at your disposal? I I don't remember. I think I tried to discourage him because I said, you know, it's going to be discontinuous. And it is. Yep. Uh, but he really was adamant. And, uh, you know, I honored that, you know, my my mindset is that the players are are my contractor they they are my audience and then the clients are next in line and you know whatever they want i try to i try to do for them filtering it through what i know works and what i know doesn't work and so i thought well you know this would be a real stretch on the notion of uh gee where did that sound go and so you watch people play and that music disappears, right? They keep the trigger finger down and, and it's just bam, 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 bam. And, you know, it just goes away. But it always comes back if you let your finger off the button. And and the nature of the tune, you know, it was it was very uh, 16th note kind of ba 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 So if you missed some of those and it came back, you know, it was still going ba 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 So if you've done anything with the flowing line, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the Pathetique by Shaikai. If you'd done anything with a flowing glide, that would have sen- sounded pretty discontinuous. So uh, the content was written to be interrupted. Okay. And of course, it's interrupted by a huge amount of explosions. There's lots and lots going on. I yeah. wanted to ask you, seeing as you have, uh, you've created a lot of explosions, uh, what, what actually makes a good explosion back in those the, the golden age of arcades? Uh, Eugene Jarvis made great explosions. 
(laughs) I have to give attribution to him because you go to Defender and at the end of that game, the screen explodes. There's this like end of world explosion, right? And and it's juicy and crunchy and, and just I admired that explosion so much. And I'm got the same style, same kind of technology. And I, I was trying to make explosions. Now, coming from my synthesizer background, I used to sell analog synthesizers. Oh, um, yeah. I made a living for two years selling those things. And so in analog subtractive synthesis, you make an explosion by starting with noise, right? And then you filter it. You apply some kind of low-pass filter. And if you get rid of the high stuff, what remains is, you know, great. <laughs> so that was my first approach. I, I know how to make noise. I know how to I have a, a random number generator and I know how to make noise. And I know I figured out how to write a, a filter. I figured out how to write the cheapest low-pass filter that I could. But that's the obvious way of doing it. And while I made something that was kind of... You know, it had no dynamic range. I couldn't sweep the filter because the way I was doing it is a power of two filter. And so I only had eight notches of, of, you know, so it was very steppy. And it was just impossible to use traditional analog techniques, emulating them in digital with a 6502 running at less than one megahertz for those who understand that that's not much. And uh, most $5 wristwatches have 20 times that horsepower. Okay, now. So I said, well, this ain't going to work. And I was struggling with it. I was I was making some things and, and they sounded, you know, kind of okay, but I couldn't get that really brilliant sweep that good explosions, you know, they explosion by its nature has a bunch of energy at the front, which diminishes all explosions that have that property. So I was having a hard time with that. Well, so the story that I tell is that I was invited over to uh, Eugene Jarvis's offices because he'd uh, reached escape velocity with Williams on the basis of Defender and Stargate and started up his own development company called VidKids. And it was him and Larry DeMar. And they had appreciated having worked... uh, At the time, I didn't realize that Eugene had done a whole lot of uh, sound programming, but they had admired what I'd done on Reactor. And so they invited me over and, you know, we were kind of feeling each other out on, you know, perhaps some... They would like me to do sounds because... They were fundamentally game programmers. It was a waste for them to be doing what I do. So they invited me over one evening and they had this big library of all their sounds and they had an oscilloscope on. So I was looking at what they were playing and they were going through their library. And when they got to the Defender explosion, I'd never done this to them because I'm, I'm always trying to stay, you know, intellectual property away from them and, and do my own stuff. I saw this waveform. I saw this thing. and I, I just like, oh, of course. That's what they're doing. So you didn't actually hear it. You just saw the shape and went, got it. Yeah. Oh, oh my God. Okay, great. So armed with that, with that light bulb, I, I, the next day I, I tried something similar and I said, oh yeah, that's it. But then to my, you know, let's say, so I didn't just do what they did because I didn't want to do that. I said, well, what if I elaborate on this algorithm? You know, basically the algorithm is, it's a it's just a triangle wave, meaning you start at the lowest value, you go up to the highest value, then you pick a random number, and then you by that random number you go down to the lowest value. And then the way you limit those random numbers 
at each extent will limit the amount of randomness and it'll calm down. And so that's how you get something that's massively crunchy. You're not limiting the random numbers at all. And so, okay, that's the technology. But I said, well, what if instead of going all the way to the top, what if I pick not only a random slope, but a random destination. Now I have two knobs on this algorithm that I can adjust. Then I can run a, an envelope on those values as they change. And I discovered by doing that, I could get much more calmer, interesting. I could get the sound of like jet engines going, you know, just really. And uh, the, the rocks in Krull, the rocks coming down the mountain in the first uh, episode of Krull. Oh, that were, low, low rumble. All that yes. low rumble stuff. That's a result of of this new improved and elaborated uh, random triangle algorithm. I think a lot of us would be surprised because when we think of sound these days, you think of it being sampled or, or maybe back in the old days of folly effects that, you know, I had visions of you sort of punching a melon and going, right, that's a good, but, but you didn't do anything like that. Well, All of this was just you doing it in code. Then. Yeah. You're writing an algorithm that sounds like something. And that is, uh, you know, if you'd had 10 or a hundred times more horsepower, you could have applied some legitimate digital signal processing techniques, aping the way analog stuff works. And you could have gone at it in a much, much more direct way. Mm -hmm. But using this technique, it's it wasn't a random walk, but it was close to it. I wrote an enormous amount of small loops and 70% of them ended up on the floor because they didn't sound like anything. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, let's, let's come back to uh, Mad Planets. Can is sadly no longer with us. He passed away a few years back. Yes. I just wondered what kind of guy he was to work with. Well, I I knew him. Uh, I was probably four or five months into the creation of the division. So by the time I got there, a lot of people were already there. Um, I got there when Jun Yum, the Korean uh, designer, hardware engineer, and Khan were working shoulder to shoulder trying to get the main logic board and graphics board. It was all one thing to work. And so I witnessed that. And so that was my first introduction to Khan. He was working on Mad Planets in the shade of, you know, Reactor and then Argus and then, mm. you know, Qbert. Um, it was about that time that uh, workstations became plentiful because they became based on the PC instead of the Intel Blue Box. And, you know, for $25,000 for a Blue Box, that would buy, oh, probably six PCs set up to do game development. And so I, then, I, go ahead. Even though you would do, sorry. No, I just even though you were you primarily doing the audio for Mad Planets, I just wondered because you know there were small teams. Is that did you get any sort of input into the gameplay, even as sort of testing it? You said, "Have you thought about putting that in there?" Well, that works well, and that doesn't. Did you get any input like that? You know, I I didn't do as much of that at Gottlieb as as I do now, partially because I knew so much less, and partially because I was the only sound guy. And I just mentioned that we've now enabled maybe. 10 development teams or 12 development teams and there's me and i'm working with quick drying concrete trying to create things <laughs> i you know for crawl i needed the sound of the slayers and that colwyn running around a swamp so i needed footfalls like foley footfalls right and there's two different sounds there because when your foot goes in the swamp and when it comes back out it's different and I spent five days trying to make those footfalls <laughs> with an algorithm. 
I came up with something that was reasonably close, but I think it was a little too subtle to survive the arcade. But I came up with something that was working. Mm. Okay, five days to make footfalls. For one game, there's five sub-games in Crawl. You know, I was a busy guy. So at some point, I just didn't have the time to hang out over Khan's shoulder. But then Khan was extremely intense about this game. He had something very specific in mind. Mm. His universe, which is Mad Planets, you know, is a highly algorithmic universe and it uses some con physical laws that involve, you know, orbiting and gravity and and interplanetary, you know, the, the orbit of this body given its mass it affects this thing to some degree and all that, yet make that fun. And so given that bizarre regime i didn't have much to add <laughs> no i understand i love the word of can physics i think that's brilliant we've just invented a new science there um just as i started this section by saying we really like the game and think it's it's uh you know a bit of a lost classic we just wonder are you a fan of mad planets too david i am you know it was funny because you know i left in 83 and i went on i was a busy guy did a lot of stuff i didn't play mad planets until i was going to the june show here oh. there's a pinball and game room show where all the collectors bring their stuff to this convention center and there's like you know 500 things in this room about 250 are pinball machines and 250 are classic arcade games and one year bless their souls there was a lineup of the five of the gottlieb games that i worked on chronologically oh. so i got to play mad planets again and it and what year was this? This was probably the first show I did was 2008. So this was probably 2012 or something. Wow. And so it was a long time since I'd played either Crawl or Mad Planets. Uh, I had owned a reactor for a while, so I was very familiar with that. Um, and I hadn't played Cubert in quite a while. So I had a great time. I had a great time playing Mad Planets. And I'm going, oh, wow, this is even better than I remember. This is This is nuts. Uh, David, just really to close the circle on Crow, uh, was there any effect on your work on Crow as a result of it being a movie license? <laughs> this was my first license. And uh, be careful what you ask for, because you may get it. <laughs> we were owned by Columbia Pictures. And so it was a natural thing that at some point they would have a property that they would want to have a video game. And they wanted it in the time frame so they could stick it in the lobby when crawl was at the theaters so that was a certain deadline and a pressure and so on uh it was originally they wanted tim skelly to do it but tim read the script of the movie and tim's a huge movie guy and he said no thank you <laughs> <laughs> and uh so so then uh, matt householder also read the script he didn't think it was great but he didn't care he just wanted to have be able to do a game mm -hmm. And so him and his partner uh, started working on this. And two people working on this helped, you know, hit that deadline. But Matt was a wonderfully organized person. And uh, I think there's a lot of interesting things in Crawl relative to its time. I mean, to have five separate events kind of uh, predicts what's going to happen in the home space not too many years later. Right. You know, because prior to that time, you know, you... you get a coin-operated game. You get one screen, you get one activity, blah, blah, blah. Yes. Um, Crawl has, is it five? Five 
completely different mini games inside this one game. All relate to scenes in the movie. So, you know, the influence on me, um, James Horner did the music. And I think they sent a cassette tape my way. I don't think I, I was cleared. Maybe I was cleared to, you know, try to do something, you know, with like one of the main themes. Because, yeah, I, I definitely did take a melody from Horner. And you can sort of hear it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's a fanfare when something nice happens or is a mode introduction. I don't know. Because there generally there isn't, uh, for the same reason, Mad Planets. I mean, there isn't like music running, but there's something running under underneath these things. Like when you get to that octagon, there's a, a increasingly pulsing thing that's, you know, getting more and more intense. The, the mountain has this, you know, keeps getting bigger and bigger. The rumbles of all the the more rocks that are coming down, threatening to smash you. Mm. But, you know, I had like an eight by 10, a few eight by 10 pictures of Colwyn and uh, whatever the princess was named and, and a cassette of James Horner's stuff. I may have, you know, glanced at the script, but it didn't really affect me that much. Really, whatever Matt and Chris were doing, I mean, that's what I was paying attention to. You know, okay, you need what? You need how many? You need this? What are they doing? When did, you know, oh, okay, the glaive. So I needed this sound of this five-bladed thing flying thing, you know. Right. And I'd done Mad Planets, so I knew how to make modulated noise. So again, that was part of that. It was another variation of that, I'm sure. David, it's interesting you mentioned your uh, brush with Larry and Eugene um, around this time because listening to the sound effects on Kroll, that it's definitely Williams-esque, I would say. There's, there's, you know, a sort of mix of Robotron, Defender kind of in there. Yeah, I, I really, you know, they were there first and, and they owned that very chaotic uh, space. Uh, you go back, I mean, at first... It wasn't created by Eugene, and I can't think of the guy's name. Um, it was a programmer who created the sounds for Flash. Randy Randy Pfeiffer, I believe. Yeah, Randy Pfeiffer. So yeah, I, I credit him because you know there's digital sounds before Flash and then after Flash, and then Williams very much had a a library approach, and so that those kinds of sounds, those Williams sounds that were in Flash. And then the extensions of those then show up in a bunch of pinball machines. And then because Eugene's there doing Defender under the gun, they're in Defender and they're in Robotron and they're in Stargate. They're they're all over the place in the Williams stuff. So they become sort of the Williams sound and they're not really unique hardly to any of the games. I think Robotron really has some, some nice ones, but I hear some of those Robotron sounds in... Uh, one of Steve uh, Black Knight, the original Black Knight game has some of those, right? Yeah, I think uh, Firepower probably does as well. Yeah, Firepower, absolutely. So I, my philosophy, which ran afoul of management, because they you know, saw that and they wanted me to do the same thing, but I wanted each game to sound like as unique as possible and, and as totally suitable to the activity going on in that game as possible. Sure. And I, I didn't want there to be a Gottlieb set of sounds and then all the games sound alike. I did not want that. But to not do that, it took me an enormous amount of time to c- keep coming up with algorithms and stuff. Well, I, and by that time, by the time I'm doing Crawl, I had come up with this algorithm, which I called Multi. And 
multi is like FM synthesis. I I had inde- I had independently invented FM synthesis. <laughs> uh, thanks, Doctor John Chowding. Um, I, I sort of came up with things that were modulating themselves and resulting in, in really interesting results. And Eugene had come up with something very, very similar years before. And so it's a very rich space. And because it's one algorithm with a bunch of knobs on it, I could explore that space. Multi was because it had multiple multiple sounds and I could, but they were all pretty wacky. And yes, they were more in the, in, in that Williams sort of style. But if I came up with anything was, you know, reminded me of Williams too much, then I just backed off and I did something else. So yeah, the other thing was I was supporting so many games in development that if I had a developer come to me and uh, they said, you know, David, you're, you're going to make some sounds for this. And if I thought the game was really, really lame, and I was sure that it would never get to production, then I would just grab multi and and knock off a whole bunch of things and give it to. Him. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that's interesting. Yeah, I had to. Yeah. I had to manage my time because I, I sure. was sort of a gatekeeper in that. Oh, this is really great. Okay, I'm going to put a lot of effort in this. Oh, this guy has a lot to learn, and, and I I just can't. I've already done this once i mean the second game i worked like eight months on and uh you know it it never saw production Mm -hmm. and it broke my heart so i was trying to prevent that you know i i I owned these algorithms they were my children i was creating them strictly out of gossamer and whimsy (laughs) and (laughs) and a lot of serendipity you know it it, and and tremendous amount of iteration you know let's see what's down this road ah that's a road of garbage okay what's over here? And I would code some more stuff. And every every once in a while, I would find a nugget of gold. My favorite nugget, Gottlieb nugget of gold, is the uh, sound when you put a coin in. Yes. Because it, it kind of sounds like a coin going into a mason jar. <laughs> Just, mm-hmm. That's a crazy algorithm. I, I wasn't trying to make that. But the minute I did, I recognized it for what it was. And I said, okay, that is going to be the coin in sound. Uh, David, can we can we talk a bit about um, how you came about leaving Gottlieb? Yeah, well, I also did the sounds for Insector, which was Tim's second game. Yes, mm-hmm. and Insector was Tim's homage to Robotron. Tim wanted to make you know something as intense uh, as Robotron in his own way with his his style, and he made Insector. And so I made a whole bunch of sounds for Insector, and I, I liked them. And they put it on test and it tested as badly as any game had ever had public test. The reason for that was that the difficulty curve, you know, Tim had just wildly overestimated people's tolerance for difficulty. And he just introduced way too many concepts too quickly. And it was just, you know, no, no, thank you. So he, uh, he went back. And he strung everything out and he, you know, relaxed the introduction of difficulties and had some tutorial things and stuff. And they put it back out on test and it it tested well. Uh, frankly, I think it needed a third pass. But by that time, the industry was experienced. This was the beginning of 83 and the entire coin operated industry was beginning to be in the throes of, oops. We bought too many Pac-Mans. The way that works for an operator 
is, you know, they, they see the earning reports for Pac-Man or Ms. Pac-Man. And so they go, oh, wow, if it makes that much money and women play it, I, you know, if I had 10 of them, I'd make 10 times that much money. And I think for a short period, that was true. But they had invested so much money of their discretionary funds in buying Pac-Mans. And then, you know, it reached saturation and and the novelty began wearing off. And all of a sudden, they've got this huge inventory of games that isn't making that much money, but they don't have a whole lot of money to spend on you know, trying to find the next Pac-Man. So if you were to sell a game into that environment, you needed to have some really solid numbers that, you know, here, look, for eight weeks or 12 weeks, this game has been testing and look at look at what it's pulling in, blah, blah. So if you didn't show fantastic numbers, you couldn't give that game away. And so uh, Insector was was uh, dumped and wasn't made. And I got going, oh my God, this is a good game. And a year ago, this game would have been made. I mean, it was sent Tim back and he would have refined it a little bit more and tuned it up, but this game would have been made. And I was beginning to see that, that uh, this whole industry is is really hitting up a kind of ugly saturation. And I'm not sure in that time, 83, I don't know, there were economic tides receding and there were also cash flow things going on or not. But I just had a gut feeling. There was that. And then the other was that, you know, they had sold 30,000 cubits and uh, I got a very small bonus check and I was you know, made to be anonymous even to publications. So if your magazine came to me, you know, I was, I couldn't even use my own name. Mm. Yes. We've, yeah, we've, we've heard that story as well from um, uh, Warren and Jeff. Yeah. 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 So the anonymity, the, the money and the general feeling that I didn't think this was heading in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, I, I, I started looking for something else and I found a company in South Barrington that was doing uh, games for the consoles and, and home games. And I thought, well, this will be, this will be interesting. And I think this is on the ascendancy and I don't believe coin up right now is, or certainly not coin up at Gottlieb. So uh, about halfway through Mach three, I just said, mm, I'm gone. David, our, our podcast tends to focus on video games for the golden age, but we really wanted to ask you a bit about the uh, the huge amount of audio work you've done for pinball tables, dating all the way back to the Cubert pinball table in 1983, except I understand you, you didn't actually know much about your contribution to that project. Is that right? That is correct. I went to Las Vegas. They have a retro gaming show there. I forget what year this was, but it's probably around... 2012 2013 and uh, they invited me to speak so i went and when in vegas they have a massive museum of pinball yes that's right so I, of course i had to go and i'm wandering up and down the aisles and then i see cubert's quest and i thought oh my god <laughs> i mean i was vaguely intellectually i was vaguely aware they had done one right but i i had a 17 year gap between the time that i did my last pinball machine and then i started doing pinball again and you know that time was at microsoft and then a five-year 
time where I was goofing off. <laughs> so I, you know, there's a, there's a whole golden age of pinball that I'm, I'm still studying up on. I'm still playing some of these games, trying to, you know, get a grasp of, you know, what people liked about them. And uh, so I played Kubert's Quest and it was quiet enough and I heard it and I'm going, oh my God, almost, I'd say 90% of these are my algorithms. These are all my sounds and it's, it's the Votrax, you know, Kubert speech and stuff. Wow. Just wow. Well, I imagine they owed you they, they owed you a few back royalties there, I imagine, uh, David. I, I'm, yeah, good luck collecting I, I left those. Gottlieb in 1983. Uh, royalties was never part of my deal. <laughs> okay. That was it. Um, but then in the late 80s, you kind of get back involved with pinball uh, on such tables as Secret Service and Time Machine. Now, I understand that... Um, so you had a few firsts uh, on some of those tables. Didn't you do something clever with the soundboard? Yeah, we did a bunch of things. Um, it was it was a fundamentally important thing that we for our company because we were working out of our houses in the face of that financial disaster that you know the company went under that was doing winter games. So we were working. Uh, we had formed this little company. And there was three of us. And we were you know making ends meet, paying mortgages and stuff. But Richard, who I mentioned before, had always wanted to do a pinball operating system. Okay. And just so happened that Gary Stern wanted to start a pinball company. And he had partnered with the Japanese, Data East, and a Chicago distributor for money. And they were going to do, they, they had the hardware, but they needed, it was based on, on the Williams hardware, which is allowed but they needed a clean room version of the operating system that would not infringe upon the Williams intellectual property at all. So we took that contract. Uh, it was a leap of faith for Gary Stern because, you know, we'd never done any pinball. And uh, we said, oh, yeah, we can do it. And we did it. And uh, I got a chance. They had the, the logic board was based on the Williams System 11. But the soundboard, they didn't care. So I, you know, jumped in and got to architect another soundboard. Now I did something very similar to what Williams did because there was only one chip you were going to use, the Yamaha 2151, eight channels of FM goodness. I used a different voice chip, a, a different compressor to, you know, compress speech, a Oki ADPCM chip. And unlike Williams, I don't know why they did this. Well, I sort of do, I guess. They, they just never thought that a pinball machine was a good environment for stereo. I naively thought it was. And I think as it turned out, it was okay. You know, it's not an optimum place. The speakers are too far away from you and too close together. It's hard to get a stereo spread out of that. But the nature of that chip was that everything was hard panned, left or right or center. It was possible using two oscillators to do a pan, but you just didn't do that because you didn't have enough oscillators. So you take a sound, that's coming out of some targets on the left side of the play field, you have that play only out of the left speaker and you get the stereo cue, hmm. which besides being novel, has some information, has spatial information. I hear that sound. Oh, it fits in. Yeah. It's coming out it over fits here. Into your, it fits in your mission of communicating information in the audio space. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. I must have hit targets on the left side. 
great. Yeah, oh, that's brilliant. Um, so into the new millennium, David, you've worked on a staggering amount of pinball tables. I think over thirty now, for, yeah. you know, including things like Avatar and ACDC, and a Family Guy, who uh, I particularly uh, enjoy. I just wondered if you, um, you know, had any particular favourites or those that you were really proud of. Um, you know, every every one of these, with one exception, is a license. And so the licenses typically have music associated with it, but music never comes, almost never comes as part of the package. So you sometimes I, I have music to adapt from it, like Tron, and sometimes I'm I, I'm tasked with coming up with appropriate stuff that I write myself. And to be frank, I love to write music, and I only like music that I love to write. So I, you know, these are my children. <laughs> uh, so one of my favorites is uh, uh, the, the reboot of the Star Trek uh, universe that had a pinball machine based on those, yeah, those yeah. first two films. And uh, Steve Ritchie didn't want to use the, the new music. And so, but they weren't going to like, the only thing they licensed were what I call the 13 notes. Right. <laughs> that. So okay. I'll name that tune in 13. Yeah, I did my brilliant rendition of that with full orchestra. But then I was tasked with what I consider walking in the shoes of giants. They're really great. There is some great music associated with that franchise written by Jerry Goldsmith and uh, particularly James Horner. Wrath of Khan is a monster score. And uh, that was sort of, yeah, I was a Trekkie. In 1966, I was like watching those when they were on on Friday Friday evenings when I wasn't in marching band. <laughs> and you uh, really were a cool kid, weren't you, David? Oh, I was. Oh, braces and briefcase. Trust me. <laughs> See, the thing it saved me from from being in a clock tower with a high powered rifle <laughs> was I I joined a rock band when I was like. When I was a junior and I was playing, you know, post-proms and doing all this stuff, that that turned it all around and I never looked back. Can I just say thank you for sharing not only so many fantastic stories of, of back in the golden age and more recently, but also just pointing out how important audio is as part of the whole game experience. David, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thank you so much for in- inviting me. I, I'm, I have... I, I love to have an opportunity to reach out and uh, talk to people who are, you know, care and, and who like this stuff. It's it's great for me because otherwise I, I work in a one person uh, studio. Uh, I've been doing in the same space for 15 years. And so there's a certain degree of solitude involved. And so this is great to talk to other people. Thanks, David. Likewise for me as well. I just the the subtlety of sound in video and pinball, I think, is often overlooked. You know, from the from the three beeps in missile command that tells you your missile base is low. You know, nothing else, just three beeps, which you don't have to look anywhere to find that information out. It's just fed into your ears. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, through to the announcement of a jackpot on a sort of early eighties pinball machine which wasn't so much about notifying the player but notifying the whole bloody arcade that this guy's got a jackpot because <laughs> it's loud and there's bells ringing and you know just to get everyone to go what's going on over there you know um so th- this this has been great thank you and three um, words to say turn it up turn it up <laughs> absolutely yeah david that that this was absolutely fascinating it, it really was and and also frankly a, a little bit hilarious listening when you were talking to paul earlier listening to your you know your human sound effects He's um brilliant. 
<laughs> little bit of police academy there. Thanks, thanks so much to be you know uh, for agreeing to be interviewed. It's um it's an honor. Thank you so much, David. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you. You've been listening to the Ted Dabney Experience podcast with me, Richard May, Retro Gamer Magazine's Paul Drury, and arcade blogger Tony Temple. The show was produced and edited by myself with a bespoke score and sound suite by Ghost of Wood. Additional technical support by Jason Arbor. I was collaborating with a company in Wales. Can you imagine oh, that? This side of the pond. There was a pinball company in, in Wales called Highway Pinball. Uh, and yes. we, they secured the license for Alien. And I got to write, I wrote a whole bunch of uh, stuff for that. And the company face planted. It was, they only made 200 machines. And I, I didn't even think they'd make that many. And I was very sad, but I got mine. I have an alien here. So, okay, fine. But the investors, these Scandinavian, there's a Scandinavian and a guy from Germany, these guys who had lost all this money in this company ended up with all the IP. And so over the last four years, they have re-engineered the whole thing and they're currently manufacturing in Italy and shipping globally alien pinball machines. That's amazing. And I'm thrilled because I wanted to see this thing reach a broader audience because the work was the work was good. It was a yeah. it was my first experience using social work media, Slack. And the team was in the United States, primarily doing the software sounds and rules and lights and all that. And there we were, I, I didn't even meet the team until like 14 months after we started the project because they were in three different time zones spread across the United States. But it turned out really well. And uh, so I'm so thrilled they're shipping these now and people can buy them. We understand. And I, I, go ahead. I would just say we, we understand that you're busier now than you've ever been. So during lockdown, you were working on, was it three or even four tables? Five. Five tables. Five tables. So I just want to ask you, why do you think pinball is in such rude health at the moment, David? Um, it's, it's because all those people with discretionary income didn't take a cruise. They did not go out to a restaurant. They've been sequestered 
you know, all that period. But they could buy a pinball machine and put it in and it's safe, you know, to operate it in their basement. Right. And so a large number of people have done that. And uh, there are more companies now. See, I, I worked when I joined the industry in 2006, there was one company making pinball machines. Yeah. And that was true until 2013. So they had a monopoly. Global monopoly. That was Stern. I presume that was Stern, was it? That was Stern Pinball, right. And so for eight years, I worked for this monopolist. And uh, I, monopoly is not really a good thing for either the company or the employees or the customers. Um, not good. So I had determined that I was going to just do something else. I could make video game sounds. I could do something else. Then another company came on board. And so I worked with them for uh, several years. Then I haven't made a recent count, but I think it's upwards of nine companies globally, one in Australia, the, the people making Alien, you know, from Scandinavian money in Italy, <laughs> and three or four companies in Chicago. I mean, it's just, there's a lot of companies all developing games. And, you know, if you're a collector at this time, you've never had, you haven't had this kind of choice since the late 70s. 